I figured an appropriate first episode would be to talk about what exactly mental health is a little bit and why it's important to talk about it, which is that it's so stigmatized. Welcome to Help One Person, the podcast. I'm Arya Green. This is the first ever episode. Let me apologize in advance for the audio quality. I'm working on getting better gear. I know. I'm sorry. With that out of the way, let me talk a little bit about what Help One Person is, uh, what the idea behind the project is, and who I am (laughs) and why I'm doing this. So... Help one person every day, even if it's yourself, is kind of a mantra I like to live by. And I was really interested, given the state of the world at the moment, and the fact that I am starting grad school, and that one of my big passions is mental health advocacy and awareness. I wanted to start kind of a side passion project, I guess where I can talk about various mental health topics and advocacy and kind of put my knowledge to work. Uh, I think all this stuff is really interesting, super neat to me. I love this stuff, and it's important. So, I mean, what better idea than to start a blog slash podcast? It's going to be like a weird little combination. The idea is that I'll release podcast episodes that are long and kind of in-depth that you can listen to anytime, whether you're driving Um, cooking dinner, just hanging out, just background noise, and maybe you'll learn something along the way. In addition to that, I'll be posting short summary blog posts with kind of like the overarching message and the sources that I use for these episodes if I do research in them, which I probably very often will. So, I'm Aria Green, like I said. I... And just a person who cares a lot about mental health and mental health awareness, it has very heavily shaped my life, and it very heavily shaped the environment I grew up in. So it's become kind of my life's passion and project to raise awareness for mental health, to talk about it, to get other people comfortable talking about it, and to learn as much as I can about psychology in the field of mental health. So I'm coming from an educated standpoint when I do this advocacy work. Uh, I'm in school right now. I have a bachelor's in psychology. I'm in for my master's right now in human development, kind of developmental psych, uh, and early childhood services. So ideally, I want to get my PhD and become a child psychologist. I think advocating for kids with mental health problems or you know, teaching children about mental health awareness super, super important. They have less words and less knowledge with which to describe what they're experiencing, so it's really important that we equip with them with those tools so they know how and when to talk about it and when to speak up when they need help. So that's kind of just what I love, what I'm passionate about, and yeah. So without further ado, I figured an appropriate first episode would be to talk about what exactly mental health is a little bit, and why it's important to talk about it, which is that it's so stigmatized. 
and I want to talk about mental health history so we can kind of look into where that stigma came from and how it's persisted throughout time to actively push down people with mental illnesses and discourage people from getting help or speaking up about these things. Once we understand where these things started, we can really start to uproot those holds that they still have in society today, I think. Anyways, some of the topics in today's thing, some of the topics in today's episode. A couple disclaimers. So first of all, this is a very westernized approach to mental health history. If I had gone into like international mental health history, this would have been a four hour long episode. Also, it's very condensed. Honestly, even the U.S. mental health history and the history of all the therapy practices and treatments could be a four-hour-long episode. And I didn't want to do that to you. didn't want to do that to myself coming straight in. So it's very condensed. It really focuses on stigma. I glaze over a lot of certain topics because either, one, I feel like I'm not super qualified to go in-depth on those topics, but I do think it's important for me to bring them up. and. Also, because I feel like the ones that I am more educated on or could do the research on or talk about, I feel like they could be their own episodes. So some of the things I kind of glaze over, if you're interested in hearing more about them, please let me know. Uh, Just shoot me a message. I'm going to shamelessly plug my Instagram, at helponeperson. So let me know if you're interested in hearing more in depth about anything I talk about today. Uh, Some, like I said, some of the topics that I touch on, I don't feel like I'm super qualified to get into. They fall into like racial justice categories or even like gender justice categories, social justice in general or social equality. And I'm going to be honest, I try to stay as educated as I can on these topics, but I am a fairly privileged white woman, so I'm not qualified to speak totally on some of them. I am very interested in potentially having guests on this show and like doing calls with them and hearing their perspectives from people who are more qualified or more knowledgeable about these things to talk about their perspectives. So if you are listening and you also know about some of the stuff I glaze over and you'd really like to come on and talk about it, also please let me know. I'd be very interested in that. So, all the intro out of the way now. Let's get in to the meat, to the soup. Let's get in this baby. Okay. So, mental health. What the heck is it? Why are you talking about this? So, let me define mental health starting with the modern definition, just so you know where we're coming from, okay? So, I'll start with the World Health Organization's definition. So, their constitution, their overall definition of health is health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So I think it's really important to point out that mental health is a part of the definition of health according to the World Health Organization. It is an essential element in its definition. It's a dimension of health. It's not just a discipline. It's just not just a field of psychiatry. It's not just another science. Like It is a dimension of our health. We all have it. So another definition I want to bring up that I thought was interesting that kind of takes it a little bit a blast from the past. So a guy named J.C. Flugel, who was the chairman of the conferences program committee at the very first International Mental Health Congress that happened 
Um, he originally defined mental health as regarded as a condition which permits the optimal development, physical, intellectual, and emotional of the individual, so far as this is compatible with that of other individuals. But he also specified that this definition, mental health as understood in Western countries, isn't necessarily at variance with the sense in which it is understood in other countries. Way to go, Flugel. But I also think his definition is interesting because even from the perspective of, of purely mental health, he mentions physical health. These things are so intertwined. You cannot have one or the other. You have both. And they do affect each other. Stress has a really large impact on physical health and physical health conditions. And stress is a dimension of mental health. How we manage stress, how we cope with it, things like anxiety, they have like real impacts on our bodies. I cannot overstate enough the importance of mental health and how it is an essential element to our health. It is also complex and it's unique from one person to the next, which is also kind of similar to physical health. There are some generalities, but everyone has different needs. Everyone has different emotional needs, social needs, psychological experiences that kind of make the foundation of their mental health, their coping mechanisms, and how their personality develops. So, Although we are all united in having mental health, it's really important for us to maintain it. We also need to acknowledge that everybody goes through it differently. So it could look different from one person to the next. Um, and again, it's important because everybody has it. It is so intertwined with all other aspects of our health. And the conditions and treatment are serious. One in five adults struggles with mental illness each year. That is 20% of all people, and the World Health Organization has actually also said before, they venture that up to 50% of the world's population has experienced or is experiencing some form of mental health problem or illness at some point in their life. It is so common. Also, just kind of going into the U.S., if you want to, if you want real, like, economic numbers, if you want to know the economic impact, which I don't know why you would only need the economic impact, because let's be real, people matter regardless of their economic productivity. But anyways, if you want that, let me just tell you, $193 billion is lost in earnings in the U.S. every year because of mental health, because of people needing to take breaks for their mental health, or, you know, not being available to work because you know, they're getting treatment for it, so on and so forth. And the worst part, it's fatal. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for people ages 15 to 24. It's almost a whole decade age range. And it's the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. overall for everybody. Also, it's worth mentioning, minorities are more at risk. So, on average, minorities tend to report worse mental health functioning and more depression symptoms when compared to white people from a racial perspective, and that's according to the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services. And also, LGBTQ people who openly identify as LGBTQ, their prevalence of mental illness is higher than average. Instead of 20%, where most people fall, in their communities, it is up to 37% which is crazy. That is over a third of all LGBTQ folk. 
And when you consider the disturbing numbers that the World Health Organization kind of puts out there of maybe it could be 50%, it's probably even higher for them. So you have to take into account like reported numbers are probably lower than what it actually is. So I don't think I need to go any more in depth to illustrate to you that this is a very important topic. So with that, I want to talk about why it's so stigmatized and where the stigma came from. So I'm going to get into the history of mental health and its stigmatization in the U.S. So I'm going to go kind of centuries at a time, but first I'm going to, I'm really going to start at the 16th century, right? So let me just give you a quick rundown of what was known about mental health prior to the 16th century, which is the 1500s. Just for a point of reference, any century is like the hundreds before that. So 16th century, 1500s. 17th century, 1600s. You get it. Got it. Good. So pre-16th century, in a lot of early cultures, mental, mental illnesses were thought to be caused by supernatural causes. They were spiritual failings, uh, religious failings, often. Agent, ancient civilizations all the way up until the Middle Ages had early descriptions that were recorded of what we now understand in a modern setting to be mental health disorders, such as depression or anxiety. But at the time, they didn't know that. They just kind of attributed it to spiritual imbalances or you're possessed by a demon. Oftentimes, it was attributed to deities if they had like uh, multiple deities in their religion. Um, as it became more monotheistic as time went on, it was uh, attributed to problems in an individual's relationship with God, putting the blame on that person. Um, demonic possession, divine punishment, also kind of putting the blame on the person. And I feel like this is very easily identifiable as the origins, the root of mental health stigma. Mental health problems have been stigmatized for nearly all of recorded history, and it started with people saying, oh, you're having behavioral issues, clearly you did something wrong and God is punishing you, clearly you did something wrong and a demon has gotten into your body, or something like that. Which we know now today is kind of absurd. That's probably not the case. I'm sure some people out there still kind of believe that. If you do... You have Google, you have the internet, please use it and educate yourself. But I assume that most people listening do not think those things. Go you for not thinking those things. You are way ahead <laughs> of where people were prior to the 16th century. Congratulations. So there was all the stigma. Did it go away as people realized that there's science behind this and that mental health is a common thing? Absolutely not. It just changed forms. Let's get into it. So from the 16th century to the 18th century, which is the 1500s to the 1700s. Some of the treatments that were used for these demonic possessions and things like that were things like trephination, which is one of the earliest found physical things done for this which is where they would either drill a hole in your skull or remove part of it, uh, thinking that it would let all the bad demons out of your brain or release the spirits or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have much to say about that. It's absurd. But, you know, there's that. There's also spiritual rituals, such as exorcisms. 
They did prayers. They would use charms. Herbalism was sometimes used in some cultures. Bloodletting and purging with the humors. Uh, and isolation, which isolation actually became the most popular method of treatment all the way well into the 19th and 20th century for the most part, which we will see. So I just want to, I'm going to give quick shout outs to certain people who stood out to me as I researched this history. First of all, Philippe Pinel in the 17th century, I believe. He was a French physician who pioneered humane psychological treatment to psychiatric patients. So instead of viewing it as moral or spiritual failings, he, you know, treated them like medical patients. And he made the very first attempts at what we now know to be therapy, um, which was referred to as moral therapy. So then, kind of towards the, the later part of this time period in the 18th century, uh, what were called lunatic or mental asylums became pretty commonplace. And like I said, isolation was the preferred treatment method. This kind of began in medieval times and just went all the way in. So it was mostly used to remove mentally ill people from their families and communities so that they would not disturb or disrupt them. Um, and oftentimes these people were placed in very unsanitary, very abusive, very prison-like conditions. They were marked a lot by being overcrowded and having poor sanitation, poor food quality, just a lot was going on. And often the patients were treated with very brutal physical methods. Um, some of the ones I have listed here are like ice water baths and heavy restraints. So, yeah, a little upsetting. So moving into the 19th century, which is the 1800s, um, a lot of activists started rising up and talking about the conditions in these asylums. So one of these people was Dorothea Dix. So in the early 18th century, she was an activist that championed for mentally ill people. Um, and she actually convinced the U.S. government to fund the building of over 30 state psychiatric hospitals because of the state of the asylums and prisons that she worked in. She saw how poorly the prisoners or the patients were being treated and basically had a memo sent to the legislature of her state. Uh, pretty much shaming the shit out of them for the conditions that these people were going through and the conditions that she had to witness. And uh, it worked, because 30 hospitals got built. So, go Dorothea. Another person I wanted to mention was a woman named Nellie Bly, who was an American investigative journalist. And in 1887, she authored an article, kind of a short story really, called 10 Days in a Madhouse. So Nellie Bly pretended to be mentally ill in order to be pronounced insane by enough doctors so that she could get into a mental hospital or asylum um, just to kind of see what the conditions were like and see how long it would take her to get out if she just like went back to acting normal. So she got in, she got declared insane by a couple doctors. One even said that she was hopeless and would never live a normal life, which is hilarious considering the fact that she was literally pretending. Um, and then as soon as she got in, she started to act normal, and staff failed to realize that she wasn't showing her illness anymore, and in fact started to attribute her normal, everyday actions and words to her mental illness, which is wild. But Nellie Bly recorded a lot of the poor treatments of herself and fellow patients, um, and she released this kind of expose uh, which was a big scandal at the time, and it led to much stricter diagnostics for uh, being committed to these asylums, which is good. 
After this, there were several more exposures or exposés written by journalists or individuals who would do kind of the same thing. They would pretend to be mentally ill. Um, they would just fake some sort of hallucination or psychosis. And then once they got in, they would record the conditions experienced and see how long it would take them to get out once they no longer had their illness. Which this kind of practice was really popular at this point, but it kind of continued into the 1970s. Um, and it was used a lot to discuss the validity of involuntary commitment to mental health facilities and also the conditions of these facilities. And later in the 70s, which is the, the biggest one in the 70s that is probably the most well-known, is called the Rosenhan Experiment. It, uh, it really called into question like the biases that these like psychiatric hospital workers have when labels are placed onto these patients. So more on that later. I also want to point out, during this time, probably fairly obvious because it's the 1800s, but women had little to no autonomous rights in regards to their mental health care. Um, so they were put into these facilities, um, and they could be considered unbalanced and thrown in for a variety of causes, often labeled hysteria. They could even be thrown in for being disobedient to their husbands. And they were treated a lot like children in these facilities. They had little to no rights or say in their treatment. And if they disobeyed the people who were treating them or the staff, they were often met with severe punishment. In addition to this, black people were just flat out refused mental health care and help, um, both before and after the abolishment of slavery. So black folk were either seen as not having mental health issues at all because they couldn't possibly, or they were seen to have mental health issues in the form of an ir irrational pathological desire to be white. And then also a bunch of disease and condition names were made up to describe perfectly normal actions experienced by people who are enslaved. Which is, they made up like a word for a, a mental illness or disorder that causes black people to escape plantations. And also, they, like, made up a word for specifically, like, they exhibited, basically, they made up a word specifically for um, black slaves exhibiting depression, which, again, both those things, totally normal, rational reactions to the treatment they were going through. Uh, if I sound outraged, it's because I am. I will say a lot of this stuff, the real nitty gritty, isn't always taught or discussed. Um, so I made a point to try and find some of these things, and it is horrific. But unfortunately, not surprising, given the the state of how racism has dug its roots into our country since well before the 1800s even happened. But so they were often barred from mental health facilities. Uh, if they could physically work, clearly they weren't mentally unwell enough, while people who were white who had mental illness were often infantilized um, and thought to be too frail to work or, like, do anything. So, neither perspective is great. So moving on to a more positive note, in 1843, a doctor by the name of William Sweetser is his name. He coined the term mental hygiene uh, in a book that he wrote. And this was the first terminology and attention and movement of mental health. And this kind of began the campaign for better mental health treatment to talk about mental health, awareness, education, 
and things like that. And it kind of picks up more steam here in a bit. But uh, at this time, institutionalization inpatient care remained the most popular treatment. So patients lived in the hospitals and were treated daily by staff. Um, It's considered the most effective way to care for the mentally ill. Families and communities at the time also, they often welcomed it because they struggled a lot to care for these mentally ill relatives. They didn't really know what to do or how to support them. So they were just like, yeah, yeah, just take them away. Uh, However, (laughs) these facilities were continually plagued by reports and exposés of the poor-ass living conditions and the terrible human rights violations that were committed in these places. And that continued well into the 20th century. Also, in the late 19th century, social Darwinism became pretty rampant. So a lot of people started to believe that mental illness could be cured via eugenics. This was used especially against black Americans, indigenous Americans, people of color with any kind of mental illness, and sometimes even not with mental illness. Many black misdiagnosed and falsely accused Americans were sterilized against their knowing and without their consent. Black women were disproportionately declared mentally defective and sterilized. And this continued in some states all the way into the 1970s, nearly a century later. It continued. Eugenics has been used a lot against people of color, against people with mental health problems, and basically takes away their autonomy. It takes away their control over their body. So I just want to mention that. Also, at this time, chloroform was used a lot on patients to sedate them, and electric shock therapy was highly, highly abused. Kind of going into the late 19th century. Neurologists, uh, a lot of scientists who studied the brain, started to fight with the superintendents of these asylums for control over them. And in the late 19th century, asylums were finally renamed to hospitals to try and reduce the stigma surrounding them. Also, speaking of reducing the stigma, 1892, a man named Isaac Ray founded the American Psychological Association, which really started to kickstart. It was finally an association for the science of psychology and studying the brain and mental health. And he, within his first year of founding this, brought a lot of attention to mental hygiene, as it was still called, and even defined it publicly as the art of preserving the mind against all incidents and influences calculated to deteriorate its qualities, impair its energies, or derange its movements. The management of the bodily powers in regard to exercise, rest, food, clothing, and climate, the laws of breeding, the government of the passions, the sympathy with current emotions and opinions, and the discipline of the intellect. All these things come within the province of mental hygiene. So he really started out broad with what mental health covers, which I think is good. So towards the end of the 19th century, Sigmund Freud also came into the picture, and he was beginning his clinical practice in Vienna with what he originally called a talking cure, and this would later become psychoanalysis and eventually modern therapy via many other theorists kind of jumping along with this and coming up with their own routes, theories, and therapy practices would turn into modern-day therapy treatments. So, 
let's go into the 20th century, which is the 1900s. So at this time, most treatments that were used were pretty dangerous and had a lot of high risks. Some of these treatments included insulin coma therapy, where physicians would deliberately put patients into a low blood sugar coma because they believed at the time that insulin fluctuations caused brain dysfunction. Uh, therapy using a drug called metrazole was used as well, which is a stimulant medication that could induce seizures. And at the time, lobotomies were a thing, which, while I was researching this, I'll tell you a fun little fact that uh, I didn't know and shocked the hell out of me when I, when I found it out, but lobotomies were <laughs> awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1949. Holy shit. And no, they didn't rescind that award, because they technically can't due to the rules of Nobel Prizes, but a lot of people think that maybe they should, and I am one of those people. <laughs> so, lobotomies were really popular in the 40s and 50s. They were always controversial. They were supposed to be prescribed only in severe psychiatric cases. They could be performed in as little as five minutes, and they often alleviated symptoms for people, but it was usually at the cost of them having other issues on account of the fact that a part of their brain was missing. Needless to say, they were discontinued about the mid-1950s with the introduction of the first psychiatric medications and a lot of therapy theories that started to come into play. Also, electroconvulsive therapy was used a lot at this time, but hear me out. I think electroconvulsive therapy has a bad rep. It was made in the 1930s. It is still used today. It has been highly controversial because it's been misused a lot to subdue and control patients, and it's been used very cruelly against people with mental illnesses, sometimes, many times a day, without proper safety measures, without anesthesia. And it kind of still retains that bad rep if you don't know a lot about it, but honestly, it's still effective when safely administered to people who are willing and consent to undergoing the treatment, and it's often used for people who need immediate intervention or for whom no other treatment has been effective. It's often a last resort, um, and sometimes it can be used to help chemical imbalances if the person can't take medications for whatever reason. So, and it's not like you're put in like an electric chair, right? Oftentimes, it's it's done with magnets. They, like, line it up, and they do some crazy physics shit that I don't even know how to tell you works. But trust me, it works. It isn't as awful and cruel and torturous as it's been made out to be. It's just been abused a lot. With that hot take, moving forward, a man named Clifford Beers in the early 20th century, uh, the mental hygiene movement was really picking up. And it was really improving the lives of those who were mentally ill and really advocating for mental health and, like, humane treatment of people who experience mental illness, right? So Clifford Beers was really monumental in starting one of the most important mental health organizations in America today, which is now called Mental Health America. But it was originally founded in 1909 as the National Committee for Mental Hygiene. So Beers himself had suffered from mental illness, and he had actually survived uh, a suicide attempt. After he spent several years in psychiatric institutions where he was very mistreated, he saw a lot of it firsthand. He both experienced and witnessed all this horrific abuse by caretakers, by staff that was supposed to be helping him. 
And so upon his release, he wrote an autobiography that was published in 1908, which was called A Mind That Found Itself. And with this book, he kind of set a new reform movement in motion, which really pushed him to to be a founder of Mental Health America. And just a neat little quote that I, I really liked from the book that he wrote was, As I penetrated and conquered the mysteries of that dark side of my life, it no longer held any terror for me. I have decided to stand on my past and look the future in the face. Good for you, Clifford Beers. So the founding of Mental Health America led to a lot of good things. Mental Health America really took the front lines on a lot of movements to better mental health awareness and treatment. They were a part of the creation of more than 100 child guidance clinics in the U.S. that are aimed at prevention, early intervention, and treatment. They pushed for a military mental health plan early on, and they actually convened the first International Congress on Mental Hygiene, or mental health, in Washington, D.C., which included 3,000 individuals from 41 countries. They were pretty amazing and still are pretty amazing they have a whole timeline on their website of all like the cool shit they've been a part of and all that they've done to help mental health awareness in america so in 1946 president harry truman passed the national mental health act creating the national institute of mental health and allocated government funds towards research of causes and treatments for mental illness which was kind of the first of its kind um and so in the mid-50s began a big turnover. So there was a big push for deinstitutionalization. And nationally, a lot of people were out crying that they think that institutions should be replaced with outpatient treatment and community-based treatment. So despite the fact that institutional care systems did increase patient access, they had a really bad history, state hospitals were really underfunded and understaffed, and they were continually under fire from high-profile reports of the very terrible living conditions and human rights violations they committed. And so people really started arguing that patients would have a higher quality of life if they were treated in their communities. Um, also important note, in the late 1950s, uh, one of the first drugs that was found to treat a variety of mental illnesses uh, was found and put into the pharmacology market. Um, it's still used today for psychotic disorders. It's called chlorpromazine, I think is how it's pronounced. And at this time, humanistic therapy, the beginnings of cognitive behavioral therapy, and a lot of other therapy methods begin. Again, I think that's a topic that I could make its own episode, all the therapy theories. If you're interested, let me know. But also it's worth mentioning, in around the 1950s, the term mental hygiene was replaced with mental health because it was starting to be seen more as an aspect of your health and like more essential rather than just hygiene, which is just kind of taking care of yourself. Hygiene definitely sounds less essential than health. Um, so I think it was a, a necessary shift. In 1963, Congress passed an act for federal funding the development of community-based mental health services. So, with this, a lot of strict standards were passed so that only individuals, quote, who posed an imminent danger to themselves or someone else could be committed to state psychiatric hospitals, which greatly reduced the need and the use of them. By the mid-60s, many severely mentally ill people were moved to these local mental health care homes, and care became heavily community-based. So deinstitutionalization was a big deal. 
up to this point, the public didn't really care about the mentally ill. Like, they didn't really want them in their communities. They thought, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But it just became so prevalent, like, how poorly they were being treated and how inhumane it was and how underfunded and understaffed these places was that they really couldn't ignore it anymore. So that's where this push started. So... In the early 1970s, the Rosenhan experiments happened, which I had mentioned previously uh, in relation to Nellie Bly, which they really questioned the validity of psychiatric hospitals and institutionalization standards. This led to even more awareness and education and mental illness labeling and stigma, especially for psychiatric care staff. In 1979, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill was founded to provide support, education, advocacy, and research services for people with mental illness. In 1977, President Carter established the President's Commission on Mental Health, which was the first comprehensive mental health survey since the 1950s. So at this time, even in the the late 1900s, throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, Black Americans still faced discrimination. Again, unsurprisingly, it still happens even today on some levels. Uh, So an experiment was conducted by researchers Lauren and Powell, where 290 psychiatrists were given a transcript of a patient interview. And so half of these psychiatrists were told that the patient was black, and the other half were told that the patient was white. And they concluded of the study that clinicians appear to ascribe violence, suspiciousness, and dangerousness to black clients, even if the case studies are identical to the case studies for white clients. So, there's that. In the 1990s, mental health of veterans started to become a big deal because of returning veterans from Desert Storm. Uh, The Americans with Disabilities Act is passed at this time, which blocked mentally and physically disabled Americans from discrimination in employment, uh, public accommodations, transportation, telecommunications, and governmental services. In 1993, the APA, American Psychological Association, began a list of evidence-based psychological treatments for certain disorders, including a lot of therapy practices. Between 1996 and 1998, mental health was given equity under health insurance, finally. Uh, Mental health insurance coverage for 9 million federal workers and their families started at that point. So, into the early 2000s, which is modern day. And I won't go too heavily into it, because if you're listening, you've probably lived through it. Uh, but I just want to, you know, give a quick glaze over of it. And also, so many things have happened in the early 2000s that, again, it could be its own topic almost. But early 2000s began to pay really serious attention to the mental health of everybody, but especially marginalized groups such as LGBTQ teens and kids. Um, there was heavier campaigning for awareness of mental health and mental illnesses. Research continually picks up. Um, In 2010s, the movement for mental health being treated like other health concerns started. Um, So kind of the mindset of you wouldn't tell somebody with a broken leg to just get over it or like not to get treatment. So why would you say that to somebody with a mental illness? Because it's technically the same. They're both an ailment. People really started addressing preventative care as a better standpoint to kind of approach problems before they reach a crisis stage. And mental health has become more and more integrated into primary care, and it's really heavily looked at across all stages of life now. Today, 
Therapy is often used uh, as a treatment. The idea that talking about problems with a professional could help alleviate them by providing different perspectives, teaching coping mechanisms, and doing psychoeducation. Uh, other methods include meditation, medication, physical activity, activity therapies, expressive arts therapies, mindfulness, and spiritual counseling. And oftentimes these treatments have evidence behind them as well, so they have empirical research to back them up. So just to wrap up, here we are today. A lot has happened. We've come a long way in mental health awareness and destigmatizing mental health. But there's a lot of things that still affect mental health that we don't always want to talk about, like systemic racism, police brutality, low SES, coming from a war-torn country, untreated parental mental illness, disruptive family dynamics, rape culture, the military-industrial complex, domestic violence, homelessness, lack of early childhood services and family services, poor health care, and so many other issues in our country and in the world intersect with mental health. So this does make mental health a social and political issue. A lot of cultural beliefs impact attitudes towards mental health in certain communities, even today. A lot of myths and things are pushed onto people who are experiencing mental illness, and things are said to them like, well, that doesn't happen to us. We're too strong for that. Uh, you're crazy. You're wrong. Just get over it. Are you sure you're really depressed? Don't be dramatic. You seem fine. Happiness is a choice. Give it all to God. Pray it away. Believe in Jesus harder and you'll have less anxiety or you won't be depressed. And all these stigmatizing phrases and misleading beliefs create a lot of barriers and stigmas that hurt those who are suffering from mental illness, which, as you know, is quite a lot of people and it can happen to anyone. These beliefs still exist. Mental health awareness and education fights against these stigmas, but they're still out there. And I think it's really important for me to say right here, right now, to you who's listening, it's okay to get help. You can have your faith and still need help. You can be strong and still need help. You can make choices for a better life and still need help and get help. You're not selfish. You're not lazy. You're not a coward. It's okay. Get the help that you need. So, with that, if you think that you or someone you love is struggling with their mental health, check out Mental Health America's Finding Therapy resource page. It has an entire resource guide to choose a mental health professional and treatment that fits your needs. It kind of tells you what to expect with mental health treatment. And of course, if you have any questions, please feel free to message me, DM me, whatever. I also want to give a shout out to a few specified organizations. So the Love One Foundation is a foundation that provides therapy funding support for black women. The Trevor Project is a project dedicated to helping LGBTQ youth. So usually those under 25 who are in crisis. Um, and they have a toll-free hotline, which is 1-866-488-7386. There's the Trans Lifeline, which connects trans people to community support and resources. And their hotline is 
1-800-273-8860. Blackline is a hotline that prioritizes helping Black, Indigenous, and people of color through crisis, abuse, or mistreatment via call or text at 1-800-604-5841. And if someone you know or you are in crisis, please seek help immediately. Contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline if you need to. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. Or you can get connected to a trained crisis counselor via text. If you text the word HOME, that's H-O-M-E in all capital letters, to 741-741. Also, Child Help USA is a hotline that is staffed by mental health professionals and they provide treatment referrals. They assist both child and adult survivors of abuse, including sexual abuse. And their phone number is 1-800-422-4453. Some states in the U.S. also have a statewide hotline that you can call uh, by dialing just 211, and it'll connect you to a resource hub with local crisis services or immediate health services if needed. For anybody who's international who's listening, I'm sorry, I don't have much on hand for you, but please find your resources online, please get the help you need, seek help immediately if you're in crisis. The world needs you here. So, with that whopper of a nearly hour-long episode being the first one out of the way, thank you for listening. I appreciate you going through this wild ride of mental health history summary with me. If you're interested in hearing about any more topics in regards to mental health or psychology, please let me know. I would be happy to talk about them. I think next episode, I'm going to go into something a little bit more lighthearted and a little bit more more specified. Um, We're going to talk about dreams. Do you have any questions about dreams? Do you want to know why dreams happen? let me know. With that, thank you. I'm Aria Green, and this has been Help One Person Every Day, even if it's yourself, because you deserve love, help, and light too. All the love, all the help, and all the light that you give to others. Give to yourself. Have a great day, and I'll catch you next time.